0: everyone, welcome back to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and I've got a great story about a man who was a legend in his own time. One of the best horse trainers of all time, Tom Bass. If his life story isn't a movie, it should be. They say that white men can't dance, and black men can't ride horses. That's bullwacky on both counts. This is a story of a freed slave who became one of the most popular and respected horse trainers of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, in the days before cars fully replaced the horse and wagon. Those were days when owning a prize horse meant something. Tom Bass, at the height of his career, trained horses for men like Buffalo Bill Cody, Will Rogers, and Presidents Theodore Roosevelt and William McKinley, just to name a few and people would travel from all around the world to see his horses in shows. Tom Bass was to horses, what Jack Johnson was to boxing, and Harriet Tubman was to civil rights. His training and methods of working with horses changed the way horses were treated, not just here in the U.S., but all around the world, and that type of training and those methods are at the core of movies and books, like The Horse Whisperer. Tom Bass was born a slave on the Hayden Plantation in Boone County, Missouri, on January 5th, 1859. His mother, Cornelia Gray, was a slave. His father, William Hayden Bass, was the son of wealthy plantation owner Eli Bass. Eli Bass owned and trained a great number of horses, and young Tom Bass watched and learned fast. In fact, as Tom once said, he was no bigger than a horsefly when he began to spend time with the horses getting to know them. As a toddler, he had no fear of them. He would walk under the bigger horses without having to stoop, and by age four, he was riding them. At age six, he was jumping fences. At age seven, he was given a bulky old mule called Mr. Potts by his grandpa Presley, probably saving the beast from the mule-skinner factory, as this mule would not plow or pull a wagon. He also refused to be ridden. Now a mule, as many people know, is the offspring of a male donkey and a female horse, if you were to look up the definition of stubborn in Webster's, it should come with a picture of a mule. Sometimes, no amount of pleading or force can make a mule do what he doesn't want to do. When the Civil War came and left, many plantation owners in north-central Missouri, which was called Little Dixie then, saw their fortunes disappear. Eli Bass saw his slaves freed, saw his riches disappear, and that left him a broken man. He soon died whereupon his son William Hayden inherited a share of the property and did pretty well with it, expanding his business ventures into Columbia, Missouri. Young Tom Bass was being raised by his maternal grandparents, Cornelia and Presley Gray, and it was Tom's grandfather, Presley, that took time with Tom and shared his knowledge of horses and men. One day, one of Tom's half-brothers and two of his buddies were trying to ride some of the family's good horses near the stables. The white boys noticed Tom watching, "'and sometimes he was shaking his head at their efforts. "'They shouted some insults at him "'and said he would do far worse than they "'if he ever had the chance to ride those prize horses. "'Tom ran off, and the boys had a good laugh on him. "'But he soon returned, "'wearing his grandpa's white shirt and a large black coat. "'He was sitting astride a now-saddled Mr. Potts. "'The fact that that ornery mule was saddled "'and that anyone was sitting on him "'wasn't lost to the boys and the men.' which now included his father, and who were now looking. Tom led the mule in a canter around the ring, and then performed the five movements of modern dressage. Then, in an eye-opening move, Tom led Mr. Potts in a backward canter around the arena, a move which no horse had ever been seen to do. William Bass, the boy's father, chided the white boys, telling them they could do well to observe young Tom and learn from his skills as a horseman. Word soon got around that there was a little black boy in Boone County who could perform miracles with horses and mules. Whether that caused jealousy and problems with other kids, for Tom, history doesn't tell us. But Tom soon left to work at a hotel in Columbia, where his father had business dealings. Tom transported hotel customers from the train station to the hotel in a buggy, then became a bellhop, but in his spare time, he was working with horses every chance he could get. His ability with horses was talked about, and he began earning extra money training mounts for townspeople. When Tom was 20, opportunity came to him in the form of a job offer from a well-respected horse trainer named, coincidentally, Mr. Potts. Joseph Potts, to be exact, of Mexico, Missouri. Mexico, Missouri is an unusual name. It got its name in 1836 when the founders, trying to think of a name for their town, spotted a tavern sign pointing southwest and reading Mexico that away and figured that New Mexico would work as a name. The new was dropped after the Mexican War that saw Texas become a part of the United States. The tavern and the little unnamed settlement was a favorite watering hole for travelers headed for the Republic of Texas and the Alamo in eighteen thirty six. Mexico, Missouri had one really good thing going for it. It had some good clay, and it became known as the fire brick capital of the world, those bricks being used for the launch site at Cape Canaveral. Back to Joseph Potts. He was the owner of a horse named Thornton Star, a prized stallion which is regarded today as one of the bedrock horses of the American saddlebred line. When Potts hired Tom Bass, Potts' business partner Cyrus Clark objected loudly, voicing his fears that their white business would leave them. But Potts couldn't be swayed and told Clark that Bass was an extraordinary judge of horseflesh and they would do well to keep him. Clark's attitude soon turned around after Tom Bass saved their annual show, during which they displayed and sold saddle-trained horses to the public. Tom had acquired a half-dozen horses that had been deemed as unfit to ride, and he trained them. At the show, they wowed the buyers by placing a delicate young lady on the horses to demonstrate just how gentle and responsive these horses were, and the show was a huge success. During this time, young Tom had invented a much more human bit than the type which was common in use at that time, and that bit changed horse training forever, helping to create a better bond between horse and man. It's still called the bass bit in many circles today. Joseph Potts saw the huge potential toward the patenting of this gentler and urged Tom to patent it, but Tom was concerned that the patent might slow the introduction and acceptance of the bit by years, and he didn't want the money he said he was just happy being able to sleep better at night knowing that day by day more horses were becoming free from those painful bits that was the kind of guy he was while working for pots and clark tom was handed the challenge of training a man-killing mare called the blazing black she was a beautiful horse and if it could be trained it was a sure ribbon winner this mare had a reputation for killing at least one trainer and would scream kick and bite anyone who approached her when she was moved from one stable to another It took groups of men with pitchforks to do it. Over time, Tom taught her to accept his being nearer, then receive his touch, then take a bit, then go on lead as he walked her, and then he saddled her. None of this was easy, nor did it happen overnight. It took weeks. Finally, he got in the saddle, and many weeks later began to train her. She only allowed Tom in the saddle. Anyone else couldn't get close. When a man who had worked with the mayor in the past said he was amazed that she hadn't killed Tom yet, Tom quietly answered, If she'd wanted to kill me, she would have let me know. A very prestigious horse show came up, and Potts and Clark didn't have a four-year-old to enter. A win here meant a lot of business for the partners. The Blazing Black was four years old and ready and qualified for the show, but only Tom Bass could ride her. The problem was, no black man had ever competed against white gentry at a major horse show. These shows were attended exclusively by wealthy white patrons, and the judges catered to them when they gave the Blazing Black the Red Ribbon, second place, when it was obvious to all that Tom Bass and his mare had won hands down. Potts and Clark were furious at the judges, but Tom handled it well. He said the victory here was that he'd been able to ride at all. His grandfather Presley had once told him to be fearless in his conduct because, as he put it, "'Our people need your success.'" We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsors. And now, back to our story. When Joe Potts retired, Tom took his advice and started his own horse training stables at a few rough acres just outside of town, which he bought. It was 1883. Tom had married Mexico's first black schoolteacher, Angie Jewell, and he was eager to provide a good home for her. His new property needed some major clearing, so he worked out a deal with a local contractor that he would help train the man's two horses not to be afraid of passing trains if he would clear Tom's property in return. The contractor's horses, when pulling a buggy or wagon, would react in panic fear whenever a train passed, making it impossible to drive anywhere safely. Tom loaded the two horses on a train car and rode with them to the stockyards in Kansas City, where he sued them all night while the sounds of train traffic carried on in the busy rail yard. When Tom returned home with the horses, they had no more trouble with trains passing. What Tom was looking for at this point in his work was a horse that could really show off his training skills. One day he came home with a leggy great colt he'd spotted grazing with a herd of cattle. He knew a good horse when he saw it, and he offered the owner a hundred dollars for it. When Angie saw the horse, she asked what its name was, and Tom answered, "'Columbus.' Angie asked, "'Why Columbus?' Tom's answer, Well, Columbus discovered America, and I discovered Columbus. Tom had chosen well. The colt responded to all voice commands and showed a peerless temperament. Tom later said that Columbus could open almost any gate with his teeth, and if the gate wouldn't yield, he would crawl under the fence. It didn't take Tom long to see that this was a very smart horse. The training soon began in earnest. In two years, Tom entered Columbus in the St. Louis Horse Show, one of the best shows in the country. General U.S. Grant had ridden here before he became president, and many famous riders had shown horses here. Tom entered Columbus in what was called the high school competition, which was the most difficult class. The rules required horse and rider to perform moves to music. Columbus racked, leaped, pirouetted, and pranced, and finished with a backwards canter around the arena before standing on his back legs and making a complete circle like a ballerina ending by kneeling on his front legs toward the amazed judges. One of the judges was heard to say, Impossible, as he looked on in awe. Word of Columbus's performance spread across the country like wildfire, and soon Tom was surprised when the famous showman, scout, and Indian fighter Buffalo Bill Cody showed up at his front door. Cody offered to buy Columbus at any price. He wanted him as his personal mount for his Wild West show, which was doing extremely well. From about 1883 to 1910, Buffalo Bill Cody was probably the most admired star personality, not only in the U.S., but in the world. He was very well known, and he had taken his Wild West shows internationally to give people a taste of the rapidly disappearing Wild West. He was a big, big star at that time. It was a nice offer. Tom was said to think of Columbus as one of his own children. He thought long and hard about it. On one side, he wanted to keep him. But on another side, he knew Columbus thrived on crowds and performing. He also knew that Cody was good to his horses and animals. Cody bought Columbus, and Columbus went on to be a huge hit and traveled internationally with Cody's Wild West show. In 1902, Buffalo Bill Cody returned to the little town of Mexico with Columbus. Apparently, Columbus had suffered a bout of homesickness, and Cody needed some time off. So he got Tom and Columbus back together, and during that time they performed a small exhibition just for the fun of it. But the fun turned into disaster when Columbus fell backward during a trick and crushed Tom beneath him, nearly killing him. Columbus was so upset that Tom couldn't move that he tried gently to pick up Tom with his teeth, by his shirt. Tom did survive and spent a year recovering. In 1904, Tom tried to buy a filly that he thought had huge potential from Joe Potts' previous business partner, Cyrus Clark. But Clark kept bumping the price up, setting up a bidding war and finally the horse sold to a military man for use as a buggy horse for his wife. But unfortunately, soon, because the horse had not received the right kind of training, it threw the man's wife through a plate-glass window, at which point the army captain sold the horse, whose name was Belle Beach, to Tom Bass, who had let it be known that he would buy it if opportunity ever arose. Well, Belle Beach turned out to be another great performer like Columbus, and she picked up another trick that wowed judges and spectators. Tom would dismount and face her while a waltz that was famous at that time called After the Ball is Over was playing, and then the horse danced a jig when the music changed to Turkey in the Straw. It was incredible. No one had ever seen an act like that before. That was incredible training. Tom was soon invited to perform at the Diamond Jubilee for Queen Victoria in England, but he politely refused, saying that neither he nor his horses were good sailors. He also said later that he never wanted to venture so far from land that he couldn't see an oak tree. Tom Bass was sought out by Presidents William McKinley, Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and Calvin Coolidge. William Jennings Bryant visited Bass's ranch in Mexico, Missouri one time and was seen admiring a fine-looking horse. When he asked the name of the horse, he was told it was William McKinley. Well, McKinley had defeated Bryant in the 1896 election, leaving a bad taste in Bryant's mouth for McKinley, but all was forgotten when it came to his admiration for the horse. A few years later, Cody returned with ex-Oklahoma cowboy Will Rogers, who by that time had achieved world fame as a folksy humorist, film actor, and social commentator. His quotes often made the papers, and wherever he went, he was talked about. And he talked. If you ever get a chance to read a book called The Wit and Wisdom of Will Rogers, I highly recommend it. People a few years ago compared him with humorists like Bob Hope and Johnny Carson, both of whom could take potshots at politicians without the kind of backhanded insulting that goes on today. Will Rogers was the one who said, even if you're on the right track, you'll get run over if you just sit there. He also said, I belong to no organized party. I am a Democrat. And he said, I don't make jokes. I just watch the government and report the facts. The people loved him. And he and Tom Bass, due to their great love for horses, became fast friends. In his later years, Tom Bass kept on training famous show horses. He gave a horse show in Mexico, Missouri, to raise money for a group that wanted to bring a big horse show to Kansas City. And by doing that, Tom became the founder of the American Royal Livestock Show, which is celebrating its 121st year as I write this today. It's a two-week show that shows off the nation's best cattle, hogs, sheep, and goats, and provides educational experiences and scholarships for aspiring young men and women who want to succeed in the livestock business. Tom lived his life true to his ideals and did more for gentle horse training in that era than anyone alive. He was truly the first and best horse whisperer. When Tom died in 1934, Will Rogers wrote of him, Tom Bass, well-known Negro horseman, age 73, died today. Don't mean much to you, does it? You have all seen society folks perform on a three-gated or five-gated saddle horse and said, My, what skill or patience they must have to train their animals. Well, all they did was ride it. All Tom Bass did was train it. For over 50 years, he was America's premier horse trainer. He trained thousands that others were applauded on. A remarkable man, a remarkable character. Many Negroes have been great horsemen. Every stable has its tradition stories of what its Negro rider used to do. If old St. Peter is as wise as we give him credit for being, Tom, he'll let you go in on horseback and give those folks up there a great show, and you'll get the blue ribbon yourself. Truer words never said. Thanks for joining us today at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this story about the first and best horse whisperer, Tom Pass. I know I did. And some names came up in this story that I hope to cover in the future especially those of Buffalo Bill Cody and Will Rogers. Both men are barely known and talked about today, but back in the day, they threw a wide loop, as Will Rogers used to say. I just checked the mailbox, and there's the book I've been waiting for, Civil War Commando by Jerome Priestler, and it's about William Cushing and the daring raid to sink the ironclad CSS Albemarle during the Civil War. The Albemarle was the South's biggest naval weapon, and midshipman Will Cushing, who had been drummed out of the Naval Academy for his uncompromising attitude in 1861, was the Jack Ryan type that the North selected to sink the Albemarle. I'll be sharing that interview with you in the coming weeks. Meanwhile, be sure to enjoy some of our other 1001 network shows. I've got yours truly Johnny Dollar episodes back at 1001 Radio Days, so be sure to catch that. And we just started the return of Tarzan at 1001 Stories for the Road. A little update for our listeners. At 4 p.m. today, I'll be calling Saipan to talk to 87-year-old Marie Castro, who's one of the last surviving Saipanese to actually witness Amelia Earhart in Japanese captivity on Saipan in 1937. And then on Wednesday, November 11th, I hope to be giving you an interview with Mark Eulis, who is a D.B. Cooper researcher and expert. And he's teamed up with the History Channel for the first episode in their brand new series, which is going to be premiering Saturday night, November 14th. Called History's Greatest Mysteries. They got in touch with us a few weeks ago because we share a lot of interests in common, and asked if we could partner in some ways. And I said we'd be absolutely glad to. Thank you for the opportunity. And that show has some great episodes planned for Saturday nights in fall, so you don't want to miss it. There's a lot more out there on our radar here. One Thousand One Heroes. We've got a lot going on. We've got a lot of interviews and we got a lot of stories to bring you. So enjoy. I also did a story called The First Thanksgiving, which I think you'll find fascinating, no matter how well-read you are on The First Thanksgiving at Plymouth. I think you'll discover story and details here that you'll find very, very interesting. I've got that one coming out Sunday, November 22nd, called The First Thanksgiving, so keep your eyes peeled for that as well. Lots going on here. We're having a lot of fun. It's a great, great fourth quarter for 1001 Heroes and all of our 1001 Stories podcast shows. Those being 1001 Heroes. 1,001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, 1,001 Stories for the Road, 1,001 Greatest Love Stories, 1,001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre, 1,001 Radio Days, 1,001 Sherlock Holmes Stories, where we've started a collection of all our Sherlock Holmes stories, which have been very, very popular over at 1,001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, and 1,001 History's Best Storytellers. If you like our interview shows, that's where all our interview shows go immediately after being played at 1001 Heroes. well, Some people just specifically like interview shows, so we've grouped them all at 1001 Histories Best Storytellers. There's great entertainment here at 1001 Stories Network, lots to enjoy, and lots of great history to learn, and we're so glad you're with us. Thank you for being such great fans. If you do have the time, stop at facebook.com forward slash 1001 Heroes and join our Facebook group. We're just approaching about 400 members in that group, and it's growing quickly. Great place to go to find out what's happening with us and to be able to share ideas with our other fans. Everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time.